A gap exists for women of color when it comes to advancement and opportunity in corporate environments. And this podcast is intended to start the dialogue on the lived experience of two such women of color who became fast friends through the bonds of their otherness. We weave in storytelling, humor, and firsthand insights of navigating the corporate world as women of color who also want to see change in the world for all women now and in the future. We hope for a future where diversity of thought in all of its forms is celebrated and sought out in the corporate world, and we hope you'll join us in the dialogue to get us there. So welcome, Susie, to episode three. Hello. So all about unpacking, what does it mean to be considered the model minority? We put the word model in quotes. (laughs) All about unpacking the experiences of Asian women in Canada and the many layers of conscious as well as subconscious events that have really shaped the way in which many of our Asian female friends, family, and co-workers navigate their worlds both within work as well as at home. So Susie, in your eyes, what do you think it means to even be a model minority? Let's unpack that a little bit first of all. That's a great question, and I love this topic. Um, it speaks so closely to my heart, obviously, mm-hmm. for many reasons. But when I think about, when I heard the term model minority, and this dates back a little while, um, I didn't really understand it. Mm-hmm. And then as I learned more and I read more, uh, it made a lot of sense. And right back to my university days, to me working working in corporate Calgary, mm-hmm. um, it's all about being, you know, steadfast, yeah. reliable, mm-hmm. intelligent, mm-hmm. Um, doesn't like to rock the boat, mm-hmm. comes in, does their job, goes home, and they're happy with that. Right. And so it's always been about those key elements mm-hmm. of, and I want, I always use the word worker bee, I think, yeah. right? Like I just do good work and I go home and I'm happy with that. Mm-hmm. I don't need more. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because when I think about you, Susie, I don't think of you as the quiet person at all <laughs> by any means and not by any means submissive is exactly the opposite of all of those things, right? When you really get to know you, um, the opportunities that, that come with working so closely with you mean that you get challenged as a person, as a leader, um, knowing you so closely and working with you for the last four and a half years, um, you are a model team member and person on my team, but it's because you challenge and you push and you get us all to think very differently about how we approach our day-to-day work. And I've, I've heard you time and again with leaders um, in the work that we do in recruitment capacity, and you are that person that gets them to stop and think a little differently about how they show up and what's important. And so it's it's quite interesting to perhaps in our conversation as well to unpack some of those experiences that you've had in terms of people putting you in that box and assuming things about you. And, um, you know, it's, it's really interesting because I think a lot of what the context of the conversation needs to be sort of built on is really unpacking our own Canadian history as well, because um, it needs to be called out in a lot of capacities because it really sets the stage of experiences that yourself and other Asian Canadians and specifically Asian women um, deal with today. Um, you know, the experiences that we'll highlight are obviously pieces of the history of, of Asian Canadians within the, the country and their immigration here. And they may not necessarily be, you know, the way in which people are treated today, but the context of that shapes and builds a lot of what happens in even your individual story, maybe not necessarily directly, mm-hmm. but I think it, it does. It needs to be called out. So let's dig into that a little bit more. Yeah, and right to your point, right? It's not maybe my lived experience nor my parents, mm-hmm. you know, as immigrants, but mm-hmm. um, we have to know that there's a foundation out there of where it all started. Yes. And it's important for us to even just give them the 
the time, yeah. right, yeah. to talk about it. And I think when we did our research, I mean, the three big um, stories was around, um, well, first, obviously, a lot of people know how the CP Railway was built. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, with that came a lot of different immigration laws once the CP Rail was completed. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of, that was one of the biggest ones, the Chinese head tax. And of course, after that, they actually put in um, the Chinese Exclusion Act right after, which is called the Chinese Immigration Act, mm-hmm. where it literally cut off the ability to bring their family members, reunite family members mm-hmm. with those that were here working and building Canada. Yeah. Um, and then the other one was um, always kind of side by side was, and I apologize if I'm not going to say this correctly, mm-hmm. the Komogato Maru, which was a ship carrying predominantly, predominantly Sikh immigrants mm-hmm. that were trying to challenge an existing immigration policy called the Continuous Continuous Journey Regulation, restricting migration from Asia in, in 1914. And they were unsuccessful. Mm. They were not allowed to come to Canada. Yeah. And so that that regulation stayed in effect until 1947. Wow. That's a long time. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, um, we want to talk and take a moment to talk about the Japanese internment yeah. after World War II. Yeah. I mean, there's just, I mean, it started with just getting them away from the West Coast. And then from there, it just got worse and worse. And I won't even go to details. Um, That is one of probably the biggest pieces of our history that even to date, we talk about and we hear about. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's not pretty, right? But it it sets the stage around experiences as an, an Asian minority living in this country where, People don't distinguish between you being Korean or Chinese or Japanese, Vietnamese, Filipino. Um, They don't. They just see Asian, right? And so a lot of the experiences and the discrimination and the racism and the feelings of exclusion that have come from a really deep and nasty history Mm -hmm. within our own country, I mean, that shows up in many, many, many ways in terms of primarily, I think it starts with, you know, growing up and your own home experiences and Mm -hmm. It's it's not that far removed from the experiences that you've had as a first-generation Canadian Korean living in Canada. And so it'd be interesting to kind of unpack a little bit about that um, with respect to how you feel like you've you know been treated in your own home and growing up and the way in which your parents knew how to sort of navigate raising a daughter in this environment. And they did what they could because that's what they knew at the time, right? And so I'd be curious to understand a little bit more around um, understanding packing some of those experiences in your own home and what's kind of the context of your family history and I think that leads right into like that model minority Mm -hmm. Um, you know they taught me to assimilate to be good to work hard I mean you know without the the home that I was raised in I don't think I would have had the successes that I've had Mm -hmm. and honestly I have to you know when I think about the stories that my parents told me about their immigration to Canada um, and the things that they encountered, I, I just can't even imagine the struggles and the barriers that they faced. Yeah. And to come to a country and restart at, you know, when you're in your late 20s, mm-hmm. it's unthinkable. Absolutely. Unthinkable. Um, but in in saying that, my parents came in a time in the 70s when Korea was in a certain state and they came here and there, they, there weren't very many Koreans in Calgary at the time. And so they lived in a bubble. Yeah. And that bubble really was around that um, your son's were the most important aspect of your family because they were going to take care of you when you get older. And um, I know my mom would even say, like, you know, she felt that her mom did that to her Mm -hmm. as a daughter, um, put her brothers first. And, you know, to the day that, you know, she was a grown adult, 
still had that, right? And so I never blame. I just think that's the way she knew how to raise a family. And, you know, in that, what they gave me was the gift of caring and and that the good nature of who I am. Mm -hmm. But with that also made me become the person that was quiet, the person that was there to to take care of everyone, um, but not to shine, Mm -hmm. to not to want more than what I was given. And I, I felt guilty if I wanted you know, a, a name brand piece of clothing or, mm-hmm. you know, it just wasn't something that I was allowed to do it. And they never said that full out, yeah. but that's how I felt because I knew like I was, you know, responsible. I had to help the family and, mm-hmm. you know, it was my job. That was my job. Yeah. And I took it on and I, you know, this is not something that I did, you know, unconsciously. It was something that I put, participated in. Mm-hmm. And even to this day, you'll still see me drop everything to help my parents. Yeah. Um, I don't think that'll ever leave me. And I hope that I bring that to my kids as well but with a different probably uh nurturing around education and you know that I could do more and be more yeah absolutely and it it kind of touches us of course on a really important topic which is your your mom and you have a little girl Mm -hmm. and I would so be curious to understand like in terms of the the way you want to see the world show up for her when she's um you know in a position to make decisions for herself and start to navigate the world of work and decide the direction that she wants to go in what what do you want her to sort of learn from your own experiences and how do you want the world to show up for her when she's ready to take that leap that's a great question yeah it's and it's always top of mind right at Mm. being a mom and I think you know I've spoken to a lot of Asian women actually recently Mm -hmm. and hearing their stories and their their upbringings which is actually quite different than mine um and I think oh like do I want to be that or do I want to be the way my parents but there's more to that I think I want my daughter to not have any ceilings or barriers that she just sees something and and goes after it and there's people in place and systems in place that allow that to grow and it's not because of the skill, the color of her skin mm-hmm. it's because of the abilities that she brings to the table the ideas the challenges I want her to be able to feel proud and like you said you know you told me that I challenge and I, I know I do and I think that came with years and years of work experience it didn't come right away I don't yeah. think that's something that I I, I, I guess I do all the time, but I, I can't help now that yeah. I'm older. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I want my daughter to be able to have a job opportunity and not see barriers before opportunities. Because I think that's what I see, yeah. is I always see limitations mm-hmm. or op- like barriers before I see opportunity. Right. And in your own experiences being in the workforce and working in various corporate roles throughout your career, like... It, it honestly like astonishes me and it amazes me that you're not running a company today and like at the head because you have a very like interesting perspective on things in terms of the ability to look at things very holistically and challenge the things that need to be challenged in a way that like I think we talked about in the first episode where it's like you can tell people the truth without hurting their feelings and mm-hmm. that is a skill set that leaders have or should have right and that's something that I look to you and I look to you for so much in terms of advice and insight and you have this naturally innate wisdom that you're my, you know, person, right? That I go to for everything. And the fact that I'm in a leadership position and you're not is always so shocking to me because I feel like it's always been something that's natural to you. And whether or not you've decided to pursue those or not is a different story. But in terms of your experiences, like even unpacking stuff within university, 
you know, what were your experiences like as a, a in, in university and people's perception and their ideals of what you could or couldn't do? I love that question because, I mean, it takes me back, but... Um, <laughs> We're old ladies. I, right? <laughs> well, we look young, so it's okay. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Until one day... I no. know, it all just goes downhill all of a sudden. <laughs> it's that Asian... Asian-ness in us. We can't help it. <laughs> um, but it brings up a great story, and I used to laugh about it, and I laughed about it because, you know, you know the stereotype. We're, we're talking about it right now, the model mm-hmm. minority. We are intelligent. Yeah. We're so good at math. Yeah. And we're all accountants at heart. <laughs> and I, I took accounting in university. I took a ton of accounting courses. And I remember during exams, during like exam week, usually I'd come in. Sorry, let me back up. Most lecture days, I would just come in, sit at the back of the lecture hall, you know, and cradle my coffee and listen to the lecture. But as exams started to creep up, I noticed that more and more people would start to surround me and sit really close to me, which never happened throughout the year. And I thought, weird. And it, I caught on because somebody actually spoke up and said, could I borrow your notes? Because your notes are really neat and they seem like you're, you know what you're hearing. Mm-hmm. And I just stopped and I was laughing because I'm like, I'm the worst student there possibly could be. <laughs> I am so not the model minority yeah. uh, when it comes to education. I wasn't at the time and I, I used to laugh about it. But now that I think about it, I'm like, whoa, yeah. like people actually thought, oh, let's pick the Asian in the group. Oh, yeah. Right. Blatant. And yeah. literally sit next to her mm-hmm. right before exam so we can glean off of her, I don't know, <laughs> brain, <laughs> I don't know, be in the presence of greatness. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it started there. And then I think, you know, like from there and I, you know, back then I didn't think about it too much. I just Mm -hmm. thought it was really funny because I wasn't as brilliant as they thought. (laughs) Not in that particular course. And then it grew into like, you know, my first job. Mm -hmm. I was hired because um, my boss thought I was Filipino. Oh my goodness. And she blatantly told me that when she found out I wasn't, she was quite mortified. And I was mortified (laughs) as equally. I'm like, wow, Okay. Um, and her comment to me was, I hire Filipinos because they're hardworking, they're reliable. Wow. And it just blew my mind. Wow. Right? And so you're right to the point of, is it something that I didn't seek out? Because, you know, is it a perception that I have mm-hmm. that people put me in a box? Yeah. But throughout my career, I was always giving given opportunities. You know, my one leader who actually kind of opened the door to become of me becoming a recruiter mm-hmm. um, really just nurtured me in terms of my thirst for knowledge and opportunity. I just graduated university. I knew she didn't want me to leave. Mm -hmm. So she just started giving me opportunities to work in different um, departments, you know, Mm -hmm. whether it was accounting, whether it was HR Mm -hmm. and just kept stockpiling this work. And I just thought, Oh, great. This is, this is like perfect. Cause as a new grad, you know, it's hard to get experience and without experience can't get a job. Right. So I, I never, thought anything of it until now looking back but I was never given any other opportunities in terms of whether it was advancement leadership Mm -hmm. pay whatever it was and you know I don't think she did it intentionally it was just it just never came so again I don't want to call out saying people do this intentionally Mm -hmm. you know but that's the perception that I had and that was my reality that I lived right Absolutely. And I hear to this day, like I work with a lot of people and not just, you know, in the current organization, I've always been told that I have leadership qualities, you know, mm-hmm. and this, that and the other. But how can I believe that when I constantly just get accolades for being a really good worker? Yeah. Like I'm really good at what I do. Mm-hmm. 
that's all I ever get and that's yeah. all I ever hear. Yeah. You know, I've heard many times that, you know, I don't think you're very strategic. And then the caveat of, oh, but, you know, maybe I haven't seen you in that type of position yet. Right. Right? Mm, so, yeah. <laughs> and again, like, I try to always, like, tell me, a, tell myself a story on why I'm not there. And, yeah. you know, and it was choice. I didn't ever seek out leadership. It's yeah. something that I just didn't want at the time, whether right. it was timing. I mean, for me, when I had a family, I knew that mm-hmm. my priority was going to be my family and that's okay. And I'm okay yeah. with that. Yeah. I love being your person. <laughs> and oh my gosh, that was so honoring to hear that, you know, that you come to me for those things. Cause you know, I, I think of you so highly, you're just so brilliant in all that you do that, you know, I'm just glad to be able to be in your presence. And <laughs> but there's so much opportunity to, to do more, right. Where you almost look at the idea of you know all of those those qualities around being a model minority where you're really good and studious and you're super intelligent as these really positive things but it's yes. a positive stereotyping right and it creates the ceiling of its own all in itself where you know leaders don't want to lose good people and so you kind of be kept in this box because they don't think that there's more opportunity or more possibility and a lot of times this is the the conversation that comes up over and over again where mm-hmm. We talk about advancement of women, but it usually doesn't, it usually stops at white women. And a lot of times you have senior executives and leaders in organizations that think they're doing a really good job of, of diversity and that inclusion factor. And we're advancing women, we're doing it, we're, mm-hmm. we're making the mark. And they look around and they just have women that look like their daughters yes. sitting in the room next to them, right? Yes. And they don't question beyond that, why am I not? going and taking that person who is studious, is quiet, is intelligent, but that quiet factor mm-hmm. is maybe what holds them back, right? It's that, yes. oh, maybe they don't want leadership because they're not speaking up enough and they don't, you know, desire to, to put their hand up and to really stand out in the wrong kind of a way. And so are they really courageous enough? Are they really the ones that are going to, you know, question in the right ways and think the way we need them to think when you're taught so many different things, Right. Absolutely. And that begs the question back to what we talked about in terms Mm. of having to do more to be seen. Yes. Right. And yes, I think, you know, for me, I am very quiet in a corporate setting. Mm -hmm. Like I think about myself in meetings and I like, I just, I need time to soak Yes, because I am not a reactionary person. I try not to be Mm -hmm. intentionally. I'm always mindful of my responses. So when I don't have a question right away or I don't challenge right away it's not because I don't have something or that I completely agree Mm -hmm. it's that I just need soak time and once that soak time happens and I'm sure you've seen me do this Mm -hmm. I come back at it like six times over yeah right and it's it's I guess that that confidence piece Mm -hmm. um us being told to be quiet and and taught to be quiet I mean I think about growing up and you know the men were in one room and the women were all in the kitchen cooking and the kids were with the, the the moms and you know, and I think about that, how I rarely saw interaction between, you know, the men of my family and the women of my family. Yep. Um, and when there was, it was usually just a big event. It mm-hmm. was never day to day. And I think yeah. that's a big thing, right? Like when it's something that you continuously see, yes. it's hard not to build that into your thought when I get around a corporate boardroom and there's all these, you know, men, especially white men. Yeah. And it's like, whoa, I better be careful what I say here. Yeah. Right. It really does make you a little bit more quiet. Absolutely. And so then it's like, you know, it's not only that these executives and women that are in leadership that are not pulling up the women that are quiet, mm-hmm. 
but it, it, you're right. It's that they're not even giving them an opportunity to show them in yeah. different ways mm-hmm. because they put that box around this is the way you have to show me how you're strategic yeah. or that you think differently because it has to show up in these particular moments mm-hmm. and nowhere else. Yeah. Right? So that's so defining things in a box. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it breaks my heart a little bit too because it's like you just see so many examples um, time and again of, of, you know, again, women being advanced, but there's never really a second layer to look at. Mm-hmm. Are we just hiring and promoting the same types of people? And is there privilege attached to those experiences that, you know, maybe those subtle forms of, of exclusion didn't exist in some of those households? And mm-hmm. are we really understanding that when we're unpacking someone's story or their experience? Are we just looking at the resume? Or are we just looking at someone that maybe doesn't make us feel so uncomfortable? because they happen to look like our wives or our daughters or whoever is in our circle and network of people that we know. Absolutely. And it's it's amazing. Like We talk about some of this historical context within Canada, and it's absolutely shameful, right? And it's a lot of stuff that gets pushed under the rug, and people don't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. We think a lot of, as well about a lot of the stuff that's happening in Canada right now around reconciliation mm-hmm. with Indigenous um, folks and commu- the community of Indigenous people we have in the country that... There's a lot of work to be done to remedy some of the very shameful experiences that have happened in the past. And finally, some of that stuff is getting a spotlight, right? To be able to say, we need to educate people on what happened mm-hmm. and the things that decisions that were made because of things that were out of people's control in regards to race and country of origin and things that they literally, like we've talked about many times, you cannot erase it when you walk into a room. Yes. It is there for people to see immediately, mm-hmm. right? And it's fascinating because even we, we discovered something as well in, in some of our research. And in 2012, the Bank of Canada actually went and purged the image of an Asian-looking woman um, that was created on their new $100 banknotes after some focus groups actually raised questions <laughs> about her ethnicity. The image, which was a bottle of insulin, was really meant to celebrate Canada's medical innovations. And the original image was... Um, not intended to apparently be ethnically, you know, going in one direction or another. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it showed an Asian looking woman in a science, like as a scientist peering into a microscope, there was this desire to sort of erase that and to create this sort of neutral ethnicity where now if you look at the $100 banknotes, the ones that, that were released in 2012, the image just now appears to be a Caucasian woman. And here was this really prime opportunity to represent the true cultural makeup of of Canada's history. And for such a large entity, the Bank of Canada, to go out of their way to ensure the image had that quote-unquote neutral ethnicity. (laughs) Because focus groups talked about the fact that they didn't like the idea of a $100 bill, the highest denomination of a bill that is most often circulated um, out of the, the larger dollar amounts, was someone that had Asian features. Can't have that. It's like... Wow, 2012. Yeah, that's not far away, right? That that's no. not very long ago, and you know those are those are more blatant forms of those biases. Mm-hmm. But imagine those subtle forms, those moments of truth oh. that we talked about every single day. Yeah, and we have to check ourselves. Like I think in HR and recruiters, um, myself as a leader in this space, like we we struggle a lot with being able to help leaders understand that mm-hmm. just because somebody has an accent. They don't look, sound, talk like you. Does not mean that they're not going to be amazing in leadership. Doesn't yeah. mean that there's not a possibility that they have to assimilate yes. in order to become something that looks more of a model leader to you. Yes. Right? 
yeah. that idea of the model minority it pushes people down and it doesn't, doesn't give help. them the opportunity to rise up above what stereotypes could put them in the box for it's so crazy to say positive stereotype yeah. and be right? a negative effect yeah. right and i know that's the thing it's like it, they feel good about saying oh you know you're studious you're so intelligent you come from mm-hmm. right yeah but maybe I, i'm not what if you're not yeah right yeah and i think about like i mean i was never um focused on education mm-hmm. i was a tomboy yeah and i always loved sports and yes. i just wanted to do sports get dirty and like just yeah. play mm-hmm. um that was my mo when i was growing up right yeah and so, you know, for me not to fit in that box, and I still remember when I was growing up, um, I went to Korean school mm-hmm. and they were forcing me to go. It was like you learn the language and then the next portion is like extracurricular. Mm-hmm. And the boys went into Hapkido and the girls went into Korean fan dancing. Mm-hmm. And I was four. I was so mad mm. that my brother got to do Hapkido and I didn't. Mm-hmm. And I fought and fought and fought and I resisted and I was put in Hapkido. Mm. And I just like... <laughs> And I think my, my parents were probably mortified because, of course, I was I was always doing things against the grain in that sense. Yeah. Like when some, when they told me that I couldn't do this, I wanted that. Mm-hmm. So I guess I had a little black sheep in me yes. growing up and still probably <laughs> have a little bit of it. Um, but I still remember that, like yeah. going, how unfair, yeah. right? And I'm, I'm also a justice fighter, right? Like yes. equality for all yes. or especially if it's for somebody else. I'm very, <laughs> I'm very good at that. <laughs> But yeah, and it's just like, how do we box people in when, you know, it doesn't fit, mm-hmm. not one size fit all, yeah. right? Like it just doesn't work. No, it's so true. And it, it's funny too, because I think about the experiences I've had as a Pakistani Muslim, you know, when you think about just those two layers, you probably conjure up an idea of how maybe my household was and how I was raised, but you add the layer of being Ismaili Muslim, which is a different sect of Islam that is very much focused on education and advancement of women. And I had a mom who was super educated and mm. mind you, didn't use it when she came to Canada, but there was always this expectation that I would go to school, that mm. I would always have some successful career path. Didn't know what it was going to look like, mm-hmm. but it was expected. Yeah. And I essentially followed in my brother's footsteps around going into business. Um, he's now an accountant and I'm, you know, obviously in a very different uh, path around um, HR and recruitment. But that was always a part of my upbringing. And it it tells you a lot about unpacking those individual experiences, right? That you can't assume anything about someone's upbringing, the way that they think, the way they were raised based on their background, their ethnicity. And the idea of putting this concept of model minority on somebody, it just goes against the grain of everything we should be thinking about when we're hiring, promoting, advancing people within organizations and really looking to people's stories and unpacking those things that are drivers and motivators and the things that light them up as a human being. Exactly. Those are the things that you need to hone in on, right? And it doesn't necessarily mean that a Susie Ko is going to go and become a leader because maybe that's not what you desire. Mm -hmm. But you are a leader in different capacities, right? In every single day, like everyone on our team (laughs) will say that about you, right? That it's it's this natural place that people go to because they trust you, they Mm -hmm. feel safe with you, there's that true sense of psychological safety when they talk to you. They know it's going to stay in the vault. Mm-hmm. And there's this sense of perspective and coaching and advice that you provide that doesn't come from a person who had it easy. It doesn't come from privilege. It comes from this grit and this hustle and this resourcefulness that you have innate in you. Mm-hmm. And that's leadership, right? And that needs to be celebrated. Mm-hmm. And those are those qualities in every single person. If we look beyond 
the surface and look beyond what it is that seems to be a stereotype or positive or negative, we have to challenge those things in ourselves. We do. We have to stop and think. Mm -hmm. And I think we're all, we all falter. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting. Like I think um, in our next conversation, we'll, we'll unpack a little bit around um, my own experience in in leadership and what we call kind of the leadership color gap around Mm -hmm. the fact that the higher you get up in these organizations, especially in the city that we live in, in Calgary, um, the less and less you see representation of yourself in, in people. And the more and more you feel like the token minority mm-hmm. and how lonely that can really be. Right. Yeah. And those experiences are really quite jarring sometimes when you stop and you actually start to dissect them like we did here. Yeah. Where it's like the ways in which you were raised, the experiences that you had um, in people assuming things about you based on your race and your ethnicity mm-hmm. and the cultural context and the history of the things that we may not have experienced, but our ancestors would have experienced in some capacity those all shape things in some way, shape, or form. Absolutely. And not anything that we can run away from. We have to unpack it and talk about it and discuss it in meaningful ways. Mm-hmm. So we'll uncover that next. And to end off today's episode, we want to talk a little bit about courage stories again in mm-hmm. the, as our theme yes. in every single episode. And, you know, this has been a, it's been an interesting week, I think, for both of us. We've yes, had we a lot have. going on. Yes, we have. And I'm sure there's something in there that we, we can unpack quite quite off the top of our heads, but... What's one thing that you feel like you've done this week that you've kind of stepped outside the norm of your own comfort and pushed yourself to do something that really required you to tap into your innate sense of courageousness? Well, I have to say, and I hate leaning on the things that we're doing with this, but mm-hmm. it really was um, sharing this yes. out to my networks because my networks are my personal networks. And yeah. you know me, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not on social media no. a lot. And so this was a big big push for me it was Mm -hmm. and I think I wrote that in my my sharing post was take a deep breath step into my courage um it it was really because I think a lot of my friends family and co past co-workers or Mm -hmm. current co-workers they don't know me as deeply and I think I talked about it in the first episode how I was trying to open myself up Mm -hmm. um so this will be this that well just sharing our podcast first and foremost yeah. was like oh my gosh yeah. um but also continuing on with conversations like this mm. i think is always courageous right yeah. and and trying to tap into networks that are out there yes. um so yeah i've been broadening my networks as well and really starting those conversations around what's what's been your experience yeah. right going in with full curiosity but definitely sharing these on mm. our social media yeah. channels that was tough for me big it's it really requires a, a a different way in which to tell your story that um isn't natural for a lot of people right mm-hmm. and i i realized i think in this week that i have a very i'm very easy at like i have an easy time sort of dropping the grenade and walking away <laughs> do you know what i mean like I I'll, I'll put things out there and i don't really want to hear the perspective or the feedback because i just want it to go and live and go and be and whatever and it's it's fascinating to see the feedback that we've gotten so far on the podcast and um it's validating in a lot of ways but it's also still really really scary because you know you don't know who's going to hear these things and if it suddenly puts um a perspective on us that makes us feel like we're being victims in some way and that's always really hard to find that balance yeah um it's super super tough so um i think my courage story is is kind of on that that note is that 
um, there was an article that I came across in some of the readings and the research and sort of delving into this topic and generally when it comes to experiences of women of color and race and privilege is something that I I talk about a lot in, within my own circles mm-hmm. and it's something that I remember I'm unpacking a lot when I was in grad school and it was such a light bulb moment back in the day when I was in grad school around this idea of white privilege and I never knew how to articulate it in the context of my day-to-day life. And I came across this article recently on Medium, and it was about this white entrepreneur who essentially called out his own privilege and mm-hmm. talked about the fact that he had gotten to the places that he's gotten into his life because of generations of privilege that have come and have been afforded to him because he's a white guy mm-hmm. in entrepreneurship in America, right? And there's a lot of things that he recognizes in himself that came a lot easier to him than they may have come to other people. And I posted an article in our uh, Google Plus community at work um, for, for our women's network talking about this. And I always think it's a very touchy subject because you don't want people to feel uncomfortable or like they're in some way being called out for things that they received or had in their life. And it's always about sort of changing the conversation to say privilege is not about you being sort of cut down for the things that you've gotten easily but it's about recognizing that for other people those things didn't come as easily because of things like their race and their gender and it was really uncomfortable to have to you know put something like that out there and not sure how people were going to react and it was amazing actually to see the reaction of people sort of checking their own biases and recognizing the things that have come to them that you know again may have come a lot easier I myself recognize my own privilege we talked about this last time about Mm -hmm. the fact that we are women of color, but we don't have accents. We didn't have to come here as immigrants. We were born and raised in this country, and that in itself affords a massive amount of privilege mm-hmm. because we have the ability to assimilate in ways that we choose, Yes, right? It's not ways that other people have chosen for us. Yes. Whether it's conscious or subconscious, we've done it, right? Okay. And so that was really, really uncomfortable. And, and I've had a lot of conversations this week bringing that topic of white privilege up over and over and over again. <laughs> And it's interesting to see people's reactions. Some literally don't even realize that, you know, we're talking about them and that their own biases around the fact that, you know, I had one executive tell me recently that he personally has a bias against people who get things easy, but he has a record of hiring and promoting people that frankly look just like his daughter and his wife. And, you know, there's a lot of that not looking beyond the layer of those things. Yes. And it's like, you're not going to call somebody out for that in that in that environment or that context without that trusted relationship. For sure. But I wanted to start the conversation in some way, shape, or form. So that took a lot of courage. And it wasn't particularly comfortable or easy, but it needs to start somewhere, right? I love it. I love that you did that because I think it sparks so many great conversations. Awesome. Yeah, it was, it was an interesting week for sure. I think we both kind of stepped into a lot of really interesting dialogue and conversations. It was International Women's Day this past week. And so that was um, a great day for us to launch the podcast. Mm-hmm. And um, we hope that you are um, enjoying the conversation and really able to get into um, some of your own experiences and start reflecting whether you're an ally or you're a person of color and you're in it with us. Um, we'd love to to hear some of your stories as well. If you have courage stories, if you have things that you want to talk about or uncover a little bit deeper with us, we really encourage you to um, reach out. We're at thecolorgap at gmail.com and I'm really ready to start the dialogue on a bigger scale. 
And next week we will um, uncover a little bit more about my own story and my um, journey into the leadership color gap and how that's kind of been an interesting experience for the last year and a bit um, for myself. And we thank you so much for joining us in the conversation today. We had um, a lot of fun kind of dissecting Susie's story and getting a little bit deeper. And we really thank you and appreciate all of your kindness and your support and you being along on the journey with us. Thank you so much.